If you will, turn to uh, two passages. Job chapter 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Start with Job and then we'll flip to 1 Timothy. Job chapter 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. My goal is not to exposit these texts, but to set before you a, a concept. Job, in Job chapter 9, you know that he's being accused by his friends of being a wicked man and an evil man accused of sin because of the suffering that has come upon his life and Job is responding to their accusations. And here he references his dealings with God. In verse 32 he says, For he, that would be God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us. Whereas the footnote there says, Would that there were an arbiter between us, who might lay his hand on us both. Now 1 Timothy... Chapter 2, and verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What Job saw is the great conundrum. How can a man enter into the presence of God? How, how, who's going who's gonna to be the arbiter between us, the referee, the go-between? Paul answers here, Christ is the mediator. So that's what we're studying. Let's pray that God will bless our time. Father, again, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you will bless the reading of your word. We know that just reading your word out loud can be used by the Holy Spirit to bless and feed your people, and we've already experienced that. I pray that you'll continue to do that as we look at Scripture and, and more importantly as we look at Jesus Christ and we behold this wondrous mystery of the Mediator. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So we're looking at, we're continuing to study our confession and we're on chapter 8 entitled, Of Christ the Mediator. Last week we looked at paragraph 1 which gave us sort of a comprehensive overview of Christ's work as mediator or, or of Christ as the mediator. We saw the origin of His work as mediator originates in eternity, begins at the covenant of redemption, or as the confession says, according to the covenant made between them both. Then we saw the offices that Christ fills as our mediator. He is prophet he is priest and He is king. He is head of His church. He is savior of His church. He's the heir of all things. He's the judge of the world. In every one of those places, He is acting in capacity as the mediator, mediating God's rule over all creation and particularly over His people. And then we saw the objective of Christ's work as mediator 
ultimately full everlasting redemption of His people. There the last line says, He's been given a people to be His seed and to be by Him in time, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now tonight we're going to dig into, or actually begin to dig into, in the subsequent paragraphs, the uh, details of all of that truth. That paragraph contains in it, in seed form, everything that the rest of the chapter and even the confession itself unfolds. We're dealing primarily tonight with the person of Christ, the mediator. This will, and this paragraph is, uh, this will be essentially a study in the orthodox biblical view of the person of Christ. And so we're gonna, I'm going to be making reference to some of the ancient creeds of the early church to show that this is nothing new, but it is rooted in what the church has always believed from the Scriptures about Christ. Now the question that we asked last week, or that I proposed last week, when we begin to talk about Christ mediating between God and men is, are there any requirements to be met for Christ to be a suitable mediator? And the answer, one of the answers is he has to be able to deal properly with God and man. He has to be able to reconcile two parties. Lay his hand on God and lay his hand on man. Job answered or asked the question, stated the, the problem succinctly, would that there were an arbiter who might lay his hand on us both. In this paragraph, paragraph 2, we see that Christ is that arbiter, and only Christ is that arbiter, because only Christ can truly and properly lay His hand upon God and lay His hand upon man. So, the first heading, I've, I've entitled this paragraph, The Person of Christ the Mediator. Breaking it down even further, we'll ask the first question, which is, who? Who are we talking about? Who? Very often you'll hear me use the phrase very quickly, the person and work of Christ. And in that phrase is contained a lot. The person and the work of Christ. What do I mean by the person of Christ? Who is this person? Notice this paragraph begins by saying, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. So we're dealing with Here's the question, who answer the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is the Son of God? Now here we're going we're gonna to recap a little bit and flip back to chapter 2 of the Confession and remind ourselves of what we've already heard dealing with the Trinity. Remember the Confession is, is to be read forwards and backwards, side to side. So... It brings in this information, assuming that we've already read paragraph, or chapter 2, paragraph 3, and that we've already read our Bibles also. Confession, paragraph 3 of chapter 2. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So in the Holy Trinity, <coughs> there are three 
The word we typically use is persons. The confession uses this, this word subsistences. There are three distinct, what we might call, individuals, not human individuals, but individuals, in the one Godhead, not three gods, three subsistences. There is one God, one divine infinite being, and each of these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are of one substance. The substance of a thing is that's synonymous with the essence. What is it made of? That's the substance. So what is God made of? Well, God is not made of anything. God is His essence. There is one divine essence, one substance, and each of these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the substance, is the essence, is the divine and infinite being. The Father is the divine and infinite being. The Son is the divine and infinite being. The Spirit is the divine and infinite being. Now flip back to chapter 8. We're focusing in now on the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And that, that assumes an order, first, second, third. Now let me read to you from the Athanasian Creed. This is the way that it's stated historically. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is, and here's the language, of the Father alone. Not made nor created, but begotten. And there we stop. We don't go any further because that's where Scripture stops. And so the Son is begotten of the Father, therefore the Son is the second person. He didn't come second in time. He's just the second person because He's begotten, whereas the Father is not begotten. The confession then goes on to assert the deity of the Son. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God. In other words, the Son of God is God. Not a God. He is the God. In the Bible, from cover to cover, there's one God. That one God is the Father. That one God is the Son. That one God is the Spirit. Now... The Scriptures will make differentiation between the various acts and specific works of these divine persons, but there is only one God, and every person is of the one divine essence. Listen to the Nicene Creed. It says, speaking of Christ, He's the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. In other words, He's God. The confession continues, the brightness of the Father's glory. This is just a quote from Scripture, Hebrews 1.3. He is, speaking of the Son of God, He is the radiance of of the glory of God. That text, and this is hard for us, I, maybe, maybe it's just me, that text is not meant to be descriptive. It's more of an ontological text, dealing with the being of the Son of God. Who is this Son of God? What is the Son of God? He's the radiance of the glory of God. The brightness of His Father's glory made flesh. So He's the brightness of the Father's glory and 
continuing in the confession, He is of one substance and equal with Him. Now here's where I'm going to get really technical. If you have a paper copy of the confession, one of those we put out here, there's a comma missing. Of one substance and equal with Him. And there's no comma. So it says, equal with Him who made the world. Okay? That is true. And we're going to see that. That there's no, there's no problem in stating that. But the Him there is the Father. So what the confession is saying, He is of one substance and equal with the Father. Now let me quote again from the Nicene Creed. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So there the Nicene Creed is talking to the Father. At Chalcedon, they said of one substance with the Father as, regard, as regards His Godhead. And there again is reference to the one divine essence, one God, the Son of God, is that God and shares the same divine essence as the Father. But then the next phrase in our confession says, who made the world? Now, Again, if you take the comma out, the who there would be reference to the Father. In my copy here, and in Ben's copy, and here I have a, uh, a copy of a copy of a uh, microfilm that actually has, not a comma, uh, has a, a colon. So it, it breaks there even harder than a comma. So what the confession is asserting is that the Son is of one substance and equal with Him. That is the Father. Going back to the Son now, who made the world? So the confession is actually asserting that the Son made the world. John 1.3, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the Son of God made the world. Psalm 33, 6, the word, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Hebrews 1, 2, Through whom, speaking of the Son, through whom He also created the world. Colossians 1, 16, speaking of the beloved Son, By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for him. So it, it wouldn't be erroneous really to be referencing the Father who made the world because that's true. It's also correct and biblical to say the Son made the world. Why? Because they're the same essence, the same substance. One divine essence, one God who made the world, comma, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made. The Son upholds everything. The Son governs Everything. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So that's who we're talking about in this chapter and in this paragraph. When we refer to Christ or the Son of God or the Mediator, we're not talking about anything less than God Himself. He is God. Same essence, same substance. He's God. Quote Nicene Creed, again, we believe, and, and many churches quote these often. I, would, I, I gave these out a long time ago when we started this. Look up these creeds. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, uh, the statement from Chalcedon. Just read them. I mean, they are, we are greatly indebted to men who put this in, in such clear 
and, and precise and yet biblical language. Listen to this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and, and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So when you read this, you can see that our Baptist forefathers were seeking to be very intentional about placing themselves in the line of historic orthodoxy. It was important to them. The, 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 the radical Anabaptists, and, and that uh, the, it was a, a big melting pot of all sorts of stuff, some good, some bad, and they were being grouped into that category. So as they differentiated themselves from that, they wanted to make it clear, we've not come up with anything new. We're not like those guys. We believe the same that the church has always taught. And some of them did as well. So as very God, Christ can and does lay His hand upon God. Now that's one side of His mediatorship. Who are we talking about? We're talking about God, God the Son. <clears throat> the second question is what? What did this person do in order to be the sufficient mediator? What did this person do? The confession then gives us a time frame. He's of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did... And I love this phrase, when the fullness of time was come. When the fullness of time was come. Ephesians 1.10 says that it was a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, that is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Interestingly enough, Mark chapter 1 the end of verse 14, end of verse 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When the fullness of time was come, it says he did take upon him man's nature. Now the nature of a thing is the essential properties of it. So he took upon him man's nature or the essential properties of being a man. We talked about this when we talked about depravity. That's body and soul. Every human being is made up of body and soul. So he took upon him, notice that language, he, God the, the Word, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, took upon him... That's the language not of subtraction, addition. He took upon Him. Philippians 2.7 He emptied Himself. And many people, this is where we get off into heresy, many people stop there at emptied Himself. But it doesn't stop there. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It was by addition. He took upon Him Man's nature, Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh. When? 
in the fullness of time. So he did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Again, essential properties, that is the nature of being a man. Those things which are of the essence of humanity. Common infirmities. All that which comes with being a human being in the world following Adam's sin. Whatever that means, Christ took it upon Him. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17 of that same chapter, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. So, God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took upon Him man's nature with all of the essential properties, all of the common infirmities, and this is a very important phrase, yet without sin. Christ had no sin. Isaiah 53, 9, He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in His mouth. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15 One who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He had all of the essential properties of man. He underwent all of man's common infirmities, and yet he had no sin. He was sinless. This does not make him less of a man. It makes him more of a man. It makes him man as man was created to be. Man as he should be. Man in communion with God. No sin. So the Son of God, God the Son, God the Word, the second person of the Trinity, took to himself the nature of a man and was, and this is important, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, and is true man. We have to be careful that when we talk about Christ's uh, being a man, we, we very often say was and use past tense verbs. He is a man. He has taken upon himself that human nature and is right now man. We call that the hypostatic union. Hypostasis being synonymous with a subsistence. So the hypostatic we could say the, the union of two, of two hypostases, hypostatic union, the union of two subsistences. We would say, oh, well, then you got two subsistences, you got two persons. No, two natures, two subsistences in one person, only one person. That's the mystery. How does this not create then two persons? Again, I'll quote from church history. Chalcedon. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once, complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, 
consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His, as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. The Athanasian Creed. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that He, that would be the believer, He also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of His mother, born into the world. Perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. There's that word again. Equal to the Father as touching His Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching His manhood. Who although He be God and man, yet He is not two, but one Christ. So when we talk about the mediator, who is this? This is God the Son, true God. Very God, the one God. What did, he, what did He do? He took upon Himself human nature. Did He then become two? No, He's one. The question then is, how? How, how does this happen? Who, what, how? Number three. How did this humiliation take place? My goal is not to try to answer the supernatural mysterious aspect of this because I can't. It's not possible. But I just want to show you what the Bible teaches. So when I ask the question, how, what, what, what is the process in time that we can see in Scripture? Well, the confession says that He took upon man's nature with all the essential properties and com common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. This is straight from Scripture. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come down upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Galatians 4.4, 4, He was born of woman. Philippians 2.6, Being born in the likeness of men. And I, I talked about the incarnation a while back. And now I'm going to quote myself. The Holy Spirit... In, in this act, the Holy Spirit moves upon Mary's natural biological contribution to the conception process and makes it holy. He purifies it from the stain of what? Of her original sin. Why would the Holy Spirit have to create a holy thing if Mary was already perfect and holy and sinless? Mary was not holy. Mary was with sin. Thus the Holy Spirit sanctifies the substance of Mary, but Mary herself was not free from sin. The Holy Spirit gives her conception. He creates a human nature in the womb of Mary 
from Mary's biological contribution, we might could say egg there, and the person of the Son, the divine Word, unites Himself with that human nature and is the Christ, God-man. And that's as far as we can go. That, that, that's really further using the words of Scripture as far as we can go. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah. Now that's important because of what we've been reading in Genesis and what we're going to read next week in Genesis especially. Prophecy. Genesis 3.15, God had told Eve, I will put, or told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, so we're looking for offspring. Genesis 49.10, Israel says... The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The king is going to come from the line of Judah. In Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So, and there are plenty more. The promises of God were rooted in one coming from the tribe of Judah, sitting on the throne of David and ruling the nations. And so that's the confession is affirming that he was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, meaning as the Scriptures said that it would be. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We could go to Luke and show that genealogy there, tracing him all the way back to Adam. So who are we talking about as our mediator? We're talking about God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. What did He do? He took upon Him the nature of a man. Why did He do that now? Why did this divine person take to Himself this human nature in this way? The confession says, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Notice, two whole, perfect, distinct natures. Christ is all of God. Not some of God, all of God. Christ is all man, not some man, all man. Two whole, perfect, distinct natures. When we talk about the omnipresence of God, the kids will say, well, is God here or there? Yes. But it's not as if some of God's here. All of God is everywhere at once, all the time. Here, speaking of Christ, all of God is Christ. And Christ is all of God. Christ is all man, not some man. And in the person of Christ, there is no one conversion. They're joined inseparably without conversion. The divine nature did not become human. The human nature did not become divine. No conversion. Joined inseparably without composition. When you're composing something, you take parts from here and parts from here and parts from here and you put them together like Legos. And when you get done, you have a, a complete object. No composition. So we're, we're not taking some of the divine parts and putting them together with some of the human parts and put them together and we say, voila, one person. That's not what happened. 
without, joined inseparably, without confusion. The divine nature did not become mixed with any human elements. The human nature did not become mixed with divine elements. And in that you see what we have here is utter mystery. Supernatural, divinely revealed mystery. From Chalcedon. And that's called, some people call it the Chalcedonian definition or I'm just going to say from Chalcedon. Some people say Chalcedon. Speaking of Christ, He's recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. But rather, the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Athanasian Creed, again, I'm just quoting these because these are they're so rich and I can't say it any better. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of His mother, born into the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching His Godhead, <coughs> inferior to the Father as touching His manhood, who although He be God and man, yet He is not two but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One, altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. There you have it. Which person is very God and very man yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Why did God the Son take upon Himself human flesh in this way? Answer, to be the perfect mediator between God and man. Being God, He can and does lay His hand upon God. Being man, He can and does lay His hand upon men. As Paul would say to Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's God that He might fulfill the demands of a holy and righteous, unwaveringly just God. That He might mete out a perfect righteousness to that standard. And then endure the penalty for crimes committed against an infinitely holy God. Man can't do that because man is finite. But God can because he's of an infinite value and worth. So he must be God, but he's man that he might obey as a man. And suffer and endure as a man. And resist temptation as a man. And as we saw this morning, pray and seek help from God as a man. Die as a man. Be raised as a man. Exalted into the heavens as a man. So that he could bring men to God. I'll close with this. 
Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must be clear that not only is there no salvation outside of Christ, there's no salvation outside of this Christ, this Jesus, true God and true man. And we must also be clear that it is not enough to know this. It must be our hope and our anchor. We must cast ourselves upon the great mystery and ask, how can this be? I can't explain it, but that's my only hope. And so I'm throwing myself at the, at, at the feet of divine mystery because I know that I've sinned against a holy God. The only one that can mete out what I should have meted out is God. But I also know that I'm a man, that my sins have to be punished as a man. Christ is God and man. This Jesus is the one that we must preach and proclaim and also know and love and believe upon and commune with. It's, it's, we, have to, we have to know the truth. We have to have the right Jesus. But that's not enough to have the right Jesus. We must believe upon and cast ourselves upon the right Jesus. So let's pray and then we'll sing one more song. Father, we thank you so much.